Well, good morning, Gospel Hope, and Happy New Year. Man, it is good to be back with you once again, and, and always great for the Lord to just kind of build into the rhythm of our calendars, time to kind of start afresh, hit that reset button, and begin to consider what he has for us in the days to come. So as Rod said, this morning we are going to be launching into a brand new series that we call our Identity Series. And it's called our Identity Series because it's just that. It's kind of to remind ourselves of who we are and who the Bible calls us to be, particularly here as a local assembly that we call Gospel Hope Church. And this year, in 2019, in our identity series, we're going to be preaching through our mission statement. So for those of you that are members of Gospel Hope Church, it is time for a little review right now. Let's see how well you do. Our mission is going to go up on the screen in just a moment, but don't say it yet. Don't put it up there yet, fellas, because I want to see if these folks know what they're talking about. Our mission is to... To... Not yet, no. Make. Wow, we're fired. I quit right now. Let's go some other church. To make disciples who are growing in the gospel as a family while on mission. Very good. You can now put that up on the screen there. So really, a believer is supposed to be growing in three relationships. They're supposed to be growing in their relationship with God. So that's what we say you're growing in the gospel, kind of your upward relationship. They're supposed to be growing in their relationship with other believers that say we want to grow as a family. And they're supposed to be growing in their relationship with the world that is engaging the world and sharing the gospel with the world. So we say while on mission. So upward, inward, outward, we're growing in those relationships. So in the weeks to come, we're going to preach through each of those ideas. So today, I'm going to be taking that very first line there that our mission is to make disciples. And, and let me tell you something. This is a message that I need desperately. And I would argue that every one of us in this room need to be reminded of the fact that we are put here on the planet to make disciples disciples for Jesus Christ. So we pray with me before we start and just ask for the Lord's help today that he would stir us up to a new and fresh ways, make disciples of all nations. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we need you. And we just want to pause and remind ourselves of the fact that we are dependent. Please open our eyes. Please prick our hearts. Please help us to see the desperate call that you have placed on our lives to make disciples. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So if you're taking notes today, the title of the message is simply this, Last Words. Uh, although the charismatic Babe Ruth was by far the most well-known baseball player of his era, one of his teammates, Lou Gehrig, was a big reason why the Yankees of his generation were a success. Lou Gehrig was called by his teammates and people around the league the Iron Horse. And the reason for this title is that Gehrig was a physical specimen. He just, he didn't get hurt and he played game after game after game. In fact, Gehrig for a long time owned the streak of the most consecutive baseball games played at 2,130 games in a row. Okay, just put that in perspective for a minute. That means that Lou Gehrig did not miss a game, a game, a single game for 17 years. That record stood for 56 years until recently Cal Ripken broke that record. It's probably a record that will stand forever. In 1939, Garrick was playing poorly. He, he, his batting average was down. He wasn't doing what he knew himself to be capable of. So shockingly, Garrick took himself out of the game and did not play the next game, thus ending his streak. He went to the doctor to find out what was wrong with him, why he was feeling the way he was, why he wasn't hitting or fielding properly, and he found out that he was diagnosed with ALS, a debilitative and often fatal disease, particularly back in that day. It actually became known for a long time as Lou Gehrig's disease. After the diagnosis, Gehrig was given three years to live. 
to honor him, the Yankees packed out the stadium and had Lou Gehrig Day on July 4th, 1939. Standing room only, no seats in the entire house, and Lou Gehrig uttered these famous words. For the past two weeks, you have been reading about a bad break. Yet today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Within two years, Garrick was dead. But nearly 80 years later, his speech is still widely considered one of the most profound moments in not just baseball history, but in sports history. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, because Garrick's farewell reminds us that last words can have a powerful and enduring impact. And if throngs and throngs of people pause to listen to the final words of a baseball player, how much more should we carefully pay attention to the very last words of the Savior of the world? If last words matter, then the last words of Jesus maybe are the most important words in the history of the universe. At the close of Matthew's gospel, we have recorded for us Jesus' last words to his disciples. Here's the setting. Just weeks earlier, Jesus has died and risen from the dead. And after his resurrection, he appears to his disciples on several occasions and promised them that he would meet them in Galilee. Then 40 days later, Jesus does just that. And he speaks to his band of brothers one last time. So what does he say? Knowing that this was going to be the last time that he spoke to his disciples, that he had them gathered together, and his kind of last shot to address them, unsurprisingly, Jesus makes his words count and essentially gives his followers their marching orders for the time until he would come back again. And here are the words of Jesus in that passage, Matthew 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. After Jesus spoke these words, the book of Acts tells us that Jesus immediately ascended into heaven. The disciples didn't quite know what to do with that after Jesus spoke and he kind of disappears in front of them. So they did what any rational people would do. They just stood there. They didn't move. This was not the intended effect that the Lord had for Jesus' words. So he sends a gentle reminder to the disciples. Acts chapter 1 verses 10 and 11. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went. So there they are, mouth open, staring up into the sky. What just happened? The Bible says this. Two men stood by them in white robes. These are angels, no doubt. And said, men of Galilee, why do you look into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. If I could paraphrase, basically here's what the angels were saying. You have your orders, now get busy. Don't just stand there, get moving. Listen, the great commission is not a nice suggestion, but an urgent obligation. When Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, he's essentially saying, and do it right now. Don't stand around. You don't have time to waste. Get moving. If you have trusted in Jesus, this is the reason why you are on the planet. This is the justification for your existence. This is why we at Gospel Hope Church don't practice the methodology of baptize them and then shoot them. Right? Dunk them. Okay, they're saved. They're good. Boom. Shoot them. Send them on to heaven. No, we don't do that. The reason is this. Because Jesus has work for us to do. Jesus has work for us to do. And it is to go and make disciples of all nations. As Charles Spurgeon once put it, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Our job is to make disciples or 
or really get saved. That's what Spurgeon is saying there. Real Christians are people who are committed to the mission that Jesus has called them to. In light of this truth, as I said just a moment ago, our mission statement at Gospel Hope Church is simply this. We want to make disciples who are growing in the gospel as a family while on mission. This is simply to say that everything that we do at this church, in this congregation, in our organization, in our ministries, in our plans should be oriented around the idea of making disciples. If it doesn't help us make disciples, then we should not be in the business of doing it. So, what does that mean for us today? Well, simply this, and here's my point this morning. Here's where I'm going. We must make disciples. These words of Christ are as applicable as today as they were 2,000 years ago on that Galilean hillside. That was not just for the disciples' admonitions. That was for us. We must make disciples. That is Jesus' calling on our life, and it is what we are to be living out in our lives today. We must make disciples. So you might hear this and say, okay, Ryan, I get it. But what does that mean? And how do I go about that? I mean, what is my role in the Great Commission? Fortunately for us, I don't think we have to guess about that. Because in the Great Commission itself, Jesus not only gives us our marching orders, as it were, but he lays out a strategy to help us begin to understand what our calling is here. And what I want to do in the next few moments is help us to answer the question, how and where and why do we make disciples? So I want to unpack the Great Commission here in the next few minutes. So can you hang with me here? There's going to be a little bit of teaching here at the beginning, and then we'll get a little more preachy at the end. And then at the very end, we're going to call one another to action, okay? So that's where we're going. I'm going to like kind of teach you for a bit and then kind of motivate you, Lord willing, and then say, okay, let's go. Let's do this together. Let's take some action steps and say, we need to make disciples in the world. And here is how we are going to go about it. So number one, unpacking the Great Commission, the meaning of disciple making. Jesus' command in this passage, it's fairly obvious, right? I mean, look at verse 19. There it is right there in black and white. There's, there's two kind of imperatives there that are laid out. Go, therefore, and make disciples. The, the, go, the go portion of the command is clear. That is, those who follow Jesus are to actively, purposefully, strategically be making disciples with their life. To put it simply, obedience to the Great Commission is not a passive affair. It's not... If you get around to it, make disciples. If you have a chance, make disciples. Or if it's convenient to your schedule, make disciples. No, Jesus is saying here, go and make disciples. Like, get busy, get active, get moving. Go and make disciples. At Gospel Hope, we regularly talk about... So, so, so that raises a question, at least in my mind. Sorry, I got ahead of myself there for a moment. A little excited. So... Disciple making, that's not like a term that we use in our everyday vernacular, right? That's not like something that you say all the time. So what does that mean? What does it mean to make disciples? Well, at Gospel Hope, we regularly talk about it like this. We say the disciple making is helping someone take their next spiritual step, okay? Disciple making is helping someone take their next spiritual step. Can you say that with me? Disciple making is... Sorry, I have people on the screen. People, someone, it's all good. That's a pronoun. It's fine. Helping people take their next spiritual step. That is, no matter where a person is on their spiritual journey, we want to help move them forward in their relationship with Jesus. If they don't know the Lord, what do we want to do? Well, we want to help them take their next spiritual step by introducing them to Jesus. If they've been walking with the Lord, if they've trusted in Christ, what do we want to do? We want to help them deepen in that relationship with the Lord. We just want to help them wherever they start and say, where are you? Let's take the next spiritual step. And we want to be a part of helping you do that. Here's where I get that. Look at verse 18 again, or 19 again. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then what's the next word? What's the next word? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And then the first word of 20 is teaching 
them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So according to Jesus, the way that you make disciples is first by baptizing them and then by teaching them. I think this is the Lord's shorthand way of saying, help them become a Christian and then help them live as a Christian. I think that's what really Jesus is talking about. So making disciples to Jesus is first help someone become a Christian. That's baptizing. And then after they have trusted in Christ, help them live as a Christian. That's the teaching portion. Everybody with me so far? So, so according to Jesus, that's the process. If you've been around the church very long, you may have heard terms like evangelism and discipleship. I believe what Jesus is doing, instead of pulling these things apart, instead of saying you do evangelism over here and you do discipleship over here, I think what Jesus is doing is actually smashing them together and saying evangelism and discipleship are on a continuum and I just want to crunch them together and say both of them are part of disciple making. Let me illustrate here with a graphic for you up on the screen. If you look up, there should be a... I don't have magic yet. Okay. Mm. okay. Mm. Graphic? Hey! No. No, he's shaking his head. This is bad. This is bad, folks. Okay. Is that, oh, that's painful. No? Okay. All right. We'll do it without the graphic. Okay. So, so think of it like this. Think of um, evangelism over here. Okay. Think of discipleship over here. Think of, this is really easier with a graphic, but I'm going to go do a lot of walking back and forth. Think of baptizing over here. Think of teaching over here. Everybody with me? You got those categories in your head? Okay, so if a person is way over here, and, and they don't know the Lord at all, like maybe they don't even know any Christians, like what would be the first step to making disciples? It would probably be something like, hello, my name is Ryan. Okay, so I've helped them take the next step, right? Because I'm a Christian, and now I know about Jesus. Then what do I do? Well, I start building a relationship with them, right? Then after some time, Lord willing, we start talking about kind of serious stuff in our life. We're moving beyond small talk into big talk, as it were. And then what happens? Well, then we start talking about Jesus and about how they need to trust him and that how he's our only hope. And then hopefully what happens? They trust in Jesus and then they are baptized. Then after that, what happens? Am I done? Okay, got that finished. All right, all completed with them. No, 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 no. Our work's just started, really. Now Jesus says, teach them everything that I've commanded you. That's a lot. That's a lot. So now Jesus is saying, after this person has trusted in Jesus and been baptized, now your role in making disciples is helping them kind of get to know the basics of the Christian faith, right? Okay? Teach them what the Bible is. Teach them about the church. Give them opportunities to serve. Help them to learn how to disciple others and so on and so forth. So what Jesus is saying is this. Our commission, our command is to help people no matter where they start to take their next step. Make disciples in their life. Just help them take another step in their walk with the Lord. I think that's what baptizing and teaching them means. My graphic was super cool and I'm sure I will share that with you at some point. So, so if that's what disciple making is, what's the implication for us? If disciple making is just helping someone take their next step, what does that mean for us? Well, at least two things. First, it means that disciple making is for any believer. Listen, listen. Disciple making, oh, there it is. Okay. Behold the wonder of the disciple making arrow, right? There it is. There it is. We can send that out this week if you'd like to take some time to examine that. I'm not going to talk about it again, okay? <laughs> so what does it mean? It means that disciple making is for everyone. This is not for the varsity Christians. You might not be the most outspoken evangelist in the world. You might not be the greatest Bible scholar in the world. But listen... If you've trusted in Christ, 
You can help someone take their next spiritual step, can't you? This is not like JV level, like, okay, like you guys, you just come to church, you let the pastors take care of ministries. You know, you don't reserve this for the professional Christians. In one sense, it's way more compelling when you do it than when Rod and I do it. Now, we want to be doing it, right? But we get a paycheck for doing it. You don't. So what does this mean? Disciple making is for everyone. All of you, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to make disciples. Or to put it this way, following Jesus as a disciple means following Jesus' command to make disciples. Listen, I don't want to be unkind. I don't want to be harsh. I don't want to be cruel. But I do want to say this. If you say that you're a Christian, a disciple of Jesus, and there is nobody that you are discipling in your life, you are not really following Jesus. Because his last words are this, go and make disciples. You can't say that you're following someone when you're not willing to do what they say. And to Jesus, part and parcel of being a disciple is being a disciple maker. All right, second implication is this. Disciple making takes intentionality. That's the go part. Like, go. The disciples were just standing there, like, thinking, like, somehow this is just going to happen. No. Go and make disciples. If you are waiting for someone to fall down at your feet and say, what must I do to be saved? Don't hold your breath. I think we got, like, one case of that happening in the Bible. Like, it just, just doesn't generally happen if you're just waiting for somebody to come running up to you and say, tell me how I can know your Savior. No, disciple-making takes intentionality. Open up your home. Go out for coffee. Strike up a conversation. Ask a spiritual question. Invite someone to church. Start a Bible study. In In part, the command to go and make disciples is a call to purposeful action in your life. Disciple-making happens, listen, disciple-making happens when ordinary believers do ordinary things with gospel intentionality. You're just saying, I'm going to do the things that I'm doing in my life, but I'm going to say, as I'm doing these things, I'm going to intentionally infuse the gospel into what I'm doing. Hey, if I'm going to the grocery store and I talk to the same checkout person every time, man, maybe I'm going to slip them a little one of our invite cards to church. Because I see that person all the time. Man, if I go out to lunch with a coworker on a regular basis, I am trying to steer that conversation so that we can talk about Jesus and what he's done for me. You are saying, I'm doing what I'm doing, but I'm doing it with the intent that everything that I do needs to fall under the rubric of making disciples in my life. That's what it means to make disciples. It means it's for all of us, for every one of us, and it takes intentionality in your life. The meaning of disciple-making is helping other people take the next spiritual step. And listen, brothers and sisters, that is something we all can do. We can all do that. Okay, number two. If that's the meaning of disciple-making, what is the magnitude of disciple-making? Like that. That's, that's alliterated. Yeah, ooh, I know. Wait till number three. You just, yeah. It's an M. I'm telling you right now. So we've attempted to answer the question, what does it mean to make disciples? Now now we'll tackle, where do we make disciples? Again, look at the text, verse number 19. Go therefore and make disciples of, what's it say? Say it. One more time. With conviction. That's expansive. That is massive. The magnitude of where we are to make disciples is of all nations. Most Bible scholars agree that the word nations is not referring to modern countries like Italy or Senegal or Iran. But rather it is a reference to the well over 10,000 distinct people groups in the world. A people group is a, is a isolated or distinct cultural, linguistic group of people. So in one country, there could be many, many people groups there. 
If this is true, which I believe it is, then the Great Commission is a command to take the gospel to every ethnic and cultural group that exists in the world, over 10,000 of them, okay? Here's how that looks today. Today, right now, right now, there are approximately 5,000 people groups who are considered unreached. An unreached group means that there are few, if any, indigenous Christians, little to no scripture, and no established church among that group of people. This means today, right now, in our world, that approximately 3 billion people, 3 billion, that's a B, 3 billion people have virtually no access to the gospel. That's 42% of the world's population. Now listen carefully. That's not 42% of the population that don't believe. That's 42% of the population that do not even have access to Jesus or his church or the Bible. That is 3 billion people, not that aren't Christians, but that from a human standpoint, cannot today even trust in Jesus because they have never heard who he is from the scripture. Just put that in perspective here for a minute. Today, there are currently 107 million Sheikh people in Bangladesh, or Sheikh people, I'm sorry, with another 100 million scattered in nearby countries. Uh, this, this just blew my mind. So if the sheikhs were a country, that would be the fifth largest people in the world. The fifth largest country in the world. Just slightly behind the United States in terms of population of people that are 0% evangelized. 0%. That means that for centuries, for centuries, this people group have lived have died, and by the millions have gone to hell. One right after another, never hearing of Jesus, never knowing about the gospel, never having a church established among people in their cultural group. It, that's overwhelming. That's mind-boggling if we stop and think about it. But the problem's not just across the ocean. It's in our backyard as well. In our gospel-believing denomination of churches, 1,000 of them in the good old U.S. of A will close this year. Although a third of Americans claim to be attenders of church, this Sunday only about 15% of Americans will actually be in church. In our denomination, in our denomination, a denomination that believes and preaches and loves the Bible, only one person will be baptized, only one new convert, for about every 60 people in the pew. That means it takes 60 of us to reach just one person this year. That means if we were average in our congregation, we would maybe see three people come to the Lord in the next 365 days. The average American city has one church for about one in every 7,000 people. The ideal number is more like 10 times that amount. And get this, Metro Atlanta is projected to grow to 8 million people by 2040. Don't say, oh my, the traffic. Say, oh my, the lostness. The people that don't know the Lord that desperately need to be a disciple of Jesus. This is all simply to say there's a great deal of work to be done. So you might hear me and feel overwhelmed and say, man, I get it. There is a lot of need out there. But what can I possibly do? A couple things. First of all, I am confident that God is calling some of us to go and take the gospel to the nations. I'm confident in our congregation, there are some who God is beginning to prick their heart and say, you know what? I need to go. 
I need to go and lay down my life for the sake of people like the shakes in the world. I need to spend and be spent for the cause of global evangelism. Although the Great Commission does not demand that we all become cross-cultural missionaries, I think it does demand that some of us do become cross-cultural missionaries. Do you understand what I'm saying by that? It doesn't say everybody needs to go, but it does say some do. We'll say more about this in a few minutes. And if that's you, if that's you, I want you to be thinking about that right now as I continue. And I'm going to ask you to respond here at the end of the message. Second, God may be leading some of you to go, but he is calling all of us to participate in the process of making disciples of the unreached. Man, I just praise God for the great global missions offering that we had a couple weeks ago. I mean, just, just praise the Lord. As a pastoral team, we kind of set a goal of $10,000, and we thought, man, that is great and lofty for a church plant of our size, and praise God for those of you who participated in that, and we crushed it and, and gave over $14,000 to that, and that is going to go directly to supporting missions work in the global region, and I praise God for that. But if our church is going to be part of God's mission in the world, it can't just be an offering once a year. As thankful as I am for that, and as much as that is part of our strategy, that can't be all there is to it. We must be willing to sacrificially send and support some of the best and the brightest among us to take the gospel to the nations. Here's a great story about William Carey, who was a um, pioneer missionary to India. And when he was getting ready to go, he knew that he couldn't do it all alone. So he was talking to a pastor in England by the name of Andrew Fuller. And he was saying, brother, I'll go, but I need churches like yours to be behind me and to send me and to support me and to pray for me and to recruit and help me in this difficult work that I'm going to. And he made this quote, and I think it is so fitting and apropos. He said it this way, I will go down into the pit if you will hold the ropes. And brothers and sisters, I would say to each and every one of us, we must either ourselves go down into the pit or we must be willing to hold the ropes. That is God's call on us. We really have three options when it comes to the evangelism of the unreached. If you are a really serious disciple of Jesus Christ, if you're like, I want to follow Jesus, I want to be involved in the Great Commission, you have three options when it comes to the evangelism of the unreached. You can go, right? You can go. You can say, pack my bags, relocate my life, I am on my way. You can do that. And I pray that some of us will do that. I do. Two, you can send. You can be a rope holder and say, I will, I will go with my checkbook. I will go with my prayers. I will go with any and every way that I can support people. You can go. You can send. And the third option is this. You can disobey. That's it. Those are the options on the shelf because all of us are called by the king to be involved in the great commission, to take the gospel where? What does it say? Take the gospel to all nations. It's not like a little asterisk after it, like unless you don't want to. Take the gospel to all nations. So we must all ask ourselves, how am I going? How am I sending? Or am I just got my arms crossed and say, Lord, you can have every other area of my life, but this one I'm checking out on. And if that's the case, brothers and sisters, I would say you need to examine some things pretty heavily because to be a disciple is to be a disciple maker. Number three, get ready, Rod. The might of disciple making. Yes. The meaning, the magnitude, and the might. You know I do this just for him, just for him, because it makes him feel good. So you might hear all this and be thinking, Ryan, how are we going to get this done? I mean, I'm just an individual. I mean, we're just this little church. We just started. How are we going to get this done? Of course I want to see the gospel spread. But I'm just not sure how big of an impact I can have. 
In his infinite wisdom, Jesus foresaw this objection and bookended the great commission with two empowering promises. Back to the text, verse number 18. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In other words, on both ends of the go and make disciples, Jesus gives us these empowering promises. I'm in charge. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go. And when you go and it gets hard, remember this. I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. When people reject you, when they don't listen to you, when you feel inadequate, I am with you. And I am with you to the very end of the age. There will never be a time when I am not by your side. Simply stated, Jesus is the sovereign who sends. It matters who sends us, brothers and sisters. The power behind the Great Commission, praise God, is not our ability. It is not our clevernesses. It is rooted in the fact that Jesus, the conqueror of death and hell, is the one who sends and sustains us. And that makes all the difference in the world. You are sent by Christ. I recently read a book called The Monuments Men. There was a film about this a few years back. There was this small group of soldiers, Americans and British primarily, during World War II, and they were charged with protecting monuments and cultural artifacts during wartime. I mean, talk about a daunting task. There was only about a dozen of them or so. I mean, and there's just bombs and shells going off all over the place. They have these lists of things that they're supposed to try to pr protect. War is going on in Europe where some of the like oldest and greatest cultural treasures are. I mean, the task is way beyond anybody's pay grade. So this kind of little ragtag band of low-ranking military officers are, are trying to protect important cultural historical treasures. And sometimes... Oftentimes, they would get to some military lines and, and run up against kind of a high-ranking officer and tell this high-ranking officer, hey, you can't drive your trucks through here because it's 1,500 years old. You have to go around. And what do you think the officers often said? Uh, get out of here, second lieutenant. But well, I'm a major. You, you can't boss me around. I, you, you don't know what you're... Get out of here. I am going right through here. It's faster. It's easier for my men. Get out of the way. But the monuments men had an ace in the hole. And here's what it was. They had a letter signed by Dwight D. Eisenhower, the commander of the joint forces during that time. And on that letter, it basically said that they needed to do their best to preserve every landmark and artifact that they could, and that these monuments, man, were acting on his authority. So oftentimes in the book, these guys would pull out their little piece of paper, right? And they would show it to them, and what would happen? All of a sudden, you'd get, yes, sir, okay, right away. Yeah, we'll adjust that right away. I don't think that the commander of the Joint Chiefs would be so happy if you plowed through and ignored his commands. I'll, I'll make a report and make sure he knows what you did, right? Look, here's the idea. It matters who gives you the orders. It matters who gives you the orders. And the one who calls us into this work is not just a general somewhere. He's not some guy with stars on his shoulders. He doesn't have CEO behind his name or a bunch of degrees. His authority is based on the fact that he lived he died and death itself could not hold him and he burst forth from the grave to show that he is the sovereign savior of the world and in light of what he did to rescue his people, he says to us, go, go. That is the might behind our call. Make disciples because behind us, behind us is the king of kings and lord of lords. Look, 
The success of the mission is not ultimately dependent on us, but rather Christ invites us to participate in his work of saving the world. And what a joyous thing. God says to you and I, God says, I'm going to save the world. I'm going to rescue people from their sin. And I invite you to participate in my work of snatching people from hell. Go and make disciples. Be a part of what I am doing in the world. And here's the thing. The one who promises, the one who possesses all authority will get the job done. The Great Commission is not in jeopardy. It is not in doubt. Jesus Christ will get the job done. Listen to the words of Scripture. Matthew 24, verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Matthew 16, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Revelation 7, 9 and 10. And after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Jesus will get his people. He will build his church. He will save the unreached. The gospel will go to every quarter in the world. The completion of the Great Commission is not a jeopardy. It is a fixed certainty. The only question for us is this. What part will you play? Will you pack up your life and take the gospel to a hard place? Will you prioritize your finances for the sake of the gospel, right? We do our budgets at the beginning of the year oftentimes. Will you say, you know what? The Great Commission is so important that it shows up in my budget. Will you begin to have a strategic conversation with your coworker? Oh, what a joy it would be to, when we come to 2020. And there are 10 or 15 people that said, I'm here because so-and-so just opened their mouth and shared Jesus with me. What a joy that would be if we took the Great Commission so seriously that we said we are sent out by the King and it is His power that works. That several of us just said we are going to engage in what God has called us to do. Whatever God is leading you to do, remember this. Whether you take the gospel across the globe or across the street, Jesus has promised to go with you. That is the might that is the power of the Great Commission. God always enables what he commands. And if he commands us to go and make disciples, then his spirit and his power will be with us as we go in that monumentous task. So I want to close this morning with two very specific points of applications. I want to ask these two questions. How will you make disciples locally? Hopefully, when you came in, you received a little sticky note. I'd like you to take that out right now in that little teeny cute pencil. And I want you to seriously contemplate this for one minute. I want you to write down three names, three names of people in your life that you say, I don't think these people know the Lord. Three names of people in your life that you say, I don't think they know the Lord, but I want them to know Jesus. You just take a minute and write that down. I'd like you to look at those three names and I'd like you to circle the one that right now in your heart you are the most burdened about 
this person, I, I just, man, God's really laid this person on my heart. I want you to circle that name right now. So then I want you to answer this question about that one name. What will you do this week to help that person take the next spiritual step? What will you do this week to help that person take the next spiritual step? Will you invite them out to coffee? We say, hey, I'm reading the Bible this year. Would you like to read it with me? We ask them a spiritual question. We begin to pray for them every day. Will you meet a specific need? I don't know what it is. I don't know what that name reflects in your life, but what will you do this week to say, I'm gonna try to advance the gospel ball here. I wanna see them take their next spiritual step. Now, I'd like to just take a minute and pray about that person and that step. So you have two options that you can do right now. One is, if you just want to pray by yourself, that's fine. That's fine. Just pray and ask God to help you to be faithful to take that next step this week. But, but here's even one more. Like, I, I really encourage you to do this if you feel comfortable doing it. Why don't you grab somebody right next to you and say, can we pray for this person real quickly? Let's pray for this individual and that I'll be faithful to take this step that the Lord's laying on my heart. Don't spend a lot of time, but just really lift this up to the Lord right now. We'll just take about 15 seconds for you to do that. Go. That question was about how do you make disciples locally? So I want to follow that up and say, how are you going to make disciples globally? Okay, because the commission calls us to go and make disciples of what? All nations. And we really have three options. We can either, what? Go or send or disobey. We don't want to be in that third category, right? So if while I was talking and... Um, the Lord's been laying on your heart. You're saying, you know what? I think I'm one of those goers. I think the Lord is calling me to go and take the gospel somewhere else. Now, this is not, I'm not asking for some sort of formal commitment right now, okay? This is not like you vow to vow to God and defer not to pay it. What I'm saying right now is as you just kind of honestly look at your heart, you say one day, maybe it's a year from now, maybe it's 10 years from now, but you're saying one day, I think God is probably leading me to be a cross-cultural missionary. Okay, that's what I'm saying. This is not a formal commitment. Okay, okay, I know some sensitive consciences out there. This is not you vowing. But if that's you, I really would like to pray for you and to ask God to continue that work in your heart and I'd like our church to begin to pray for you, to know that God is doing that in your heart so that we can pray intelligently and, and help send and support well. So if that's you, would you come up here right now? Would you come up here if you like, I think I'm gonna go one day. Would you come on up here? Good, praise God. 
Come on. Might not be today, but you feel like you're going to go one day. It's great. Amen. You gather right up here in front here. Pastor Rod is going to pray for you in just a second. Isn't that wonderful? Amen. And isn't it hard? Because why? Because we love the nations, right? But we love these people too. And we're like, man, if they go, what's that mean? They're not here anymore. If they go, it means we'll miss them. And we don't want to miss them. But listen. The cost of reaching the nations means that you sacrifice and it's more than just putting a check in the offering. You know, as I'm asking that, I'm like, and make sure, you know, I'm, I'm thinking in my heart, like, okay, make sure certain people don't move. Okay, you stay right there. But it means if we are really to be a church that sends and reaches, it means that sometimes we will send our best and our brightest and say, God, will you do something amazing in causing the gospel to go forward and causing people to take their next spiritual step. That's what we want to be about, amen? Okay, before Rod prays, remember we said we got to go, we got to send, or we disobey. So if you're not up here right now, I'm assuming that you want to be in that second category. Okay, so you say, what does that look like? Well, it means, first of all, pray for these people. I mean, you, you got them up here right now. You know their names. Say, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start really praying for these folks as they pursue and consider taking the gospel where it isn't. Second, um, I'm going to support them financially. Like, I'm going to give, like, listen, the Great Commission cost. I don't know if that sounds base, but the Great Commission cost. And so we need to say, man, Lord, if you have given me a job here in this affluent country, I want to do my best to see that people are supported with the gospel. Support them relationally as well. Man, when you go down into the pit, right, it feels lonely. And it's great to know that people have got the ropes and are praying for you and caring for you. Another thing I would say is we're going to, in a couple weeks, offer a number of short-term trips. Go on those trips. Here's why. Not because we're going to like turn the world upside down in a week or two trip. But because we need to have a broken heart for people that aren't here. The purpose of the trips are mainly for us. They really are. They're for us to have a heart that says we love the nations and we love what God is doing in the nations. So go. And then lastly, pray for the unreached peoples of the world. One of the greatest ways that you can have a soft heart to people that don't know the gospel is if you just regularly pray for people that have no access to the gospel. There's a couple great resources. There's a book called Operation World that you can get, or there's a website called The Joshua Project, and it will list an unreached people group every day that you can just keep that on front of you and praying for people. Man, this is terribly exciting to me. I'm so excited about this, and we're going to ask Pastor Rod um, to just pray that God would be with these folks and be with our church, that we would be, we would burn to make disciples in the world. Right.